life of his family has made them incredibly compassionate people that otherwise I think would be lacking in their lives had he not been given to them as a gift. He has a little sister who is an actress and does commercials in Dallas and is a model-like appearance and 13 years old. And it's amazing that she has no tolerance for gossip or drama or theft. or, or I mean, uh, uh, gossip or drama or theft. Why did I say theft? I told you. I'm... Sorry. I'll just, one more apology and then I won't stop all through the sermon. Okay, just a blanket. I'm sorry you're getting 80% of my mind today. Um, but she doesn't still, I'm sure. Maybe. I mean, it's probably still accurate. She's probably not a thief. <laughs> anyway, just the, the normal uh, flippancy of a teenager she doesn't have, even though she, has the, she could be one of the most popular girls and she's good looking and, and talented and all these things, she doesn't get wrapped up in that drama. And I know that part of the reason, if not all of the reason, is because she has a brother with this condition and she just knows the difference between serious and trivial. His parents, Brandy and Stan, good friends of mine, just two or three years ago, uh, Brandy serves as a substitute teacher at Sulphur Springs uh, Middle School sometimes in elementary, and she starts noticing these kids who are new and um, in foster care at the school and learns their story and then comes home to Stan and, and says, we, we have to adopt these kids, these troubled kids, and ha- they've adopted these two younger kids and brought them into their family. There's no way they have compassion like that unless Lucky's born. And they have developed that compassion caring for him. And also, and could it be that what we would call wrong and twisted and ugly and what we would call right and, and beautiful and good, that the gap is far less than we think. That in God's perspective... It is not a problem for him to say, all of that exists for my glory. That when you meet Lucky, like I've been able to and known him the course of his whole life, 17 years old now, was first at the hospital when he was born, angry that God gave my friends this baby instead of a healthy one. And then as I've grown to get to know him, you know, and and you will agree, everyone that, that is seemingly different, you get to know them and you realize the gap is far less narrow than you thought. You think they're so different and they're, and they're not. And so I wonder if sometimes it's, it's, it's easy to think uh, the gap between people I'll use, uh, if someone's crippled, for example, sometimes we like to think to celebrate on their behalf that when they get to heaven, you know, they'll, they'll be able to walk or someone's blind and they get to heaven and they'll be able to see and we think, man, uh, what a... What a, a transformation bigger than my own that, that maybe they'll get to experience. And maybe that's true, but here's another way to think about it. Maybe the transformation that we get when we get to heaven is so drastic that, that it'll be just as drastic for you as it will be for someone who's blind, deaf, and crippled. That the gap between what we will be and what we are now is the real gap, and the gap between them and us is the paperclip. And that God's using all of it for his glory And he's involved in all of it because that diversity works to reveal this greater unity that God is this creator that this passage talks about, that he is involved in everyone's life, that he does care for them and 
And if one part of one chromosome makes that difference, I wonder if it's, it's fun to conjecture if, if our heavenly bodies have 100 chromosomes. What, what are we going to be able to do? But the passage doesn't just mention things visible, which is easy, and I chose that category for it. It also mentions principalities in verse 16. And it's more, that, that verse is more contextual to the people living that are, that are having this letter written to them. Because they're living, principalities means basically a system, usually a negative, evil, wicked system that perpetuates, that's, that's hard to break. And so when Paul writes this and he says all things and he says all things and he says all things and he even lists as if they would still think there was an exception, he says even principalities, even dominions and thrones and principalities. And these people that he's writing to are living under a terrible government system that perpetuates suffering. And Paul's making it clear, yes, even that can bring God glory. And so I wanted to choose a principality as well. And the one I chose is poverty. Could, could it be true that all things, even poverty, which infiltrates people's lives and makes it difficult for them to change, could be something that that Jesus is the creator of and that, that, that Jesus is uh, involved in. And you'll have to, you'll, you, you understand that he's never the author of evil, but that he creates things sometimes that he knows are going to, to go evil. I mean, he created Satan, the, the most evil being on the planet, in the universe. I would apologize then again. But, um. So, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a theological riddle here, and it might fall under the category of things I would have edited had I had time. Um, but it's something to entertain. And I might be completely wrong, and I'll tell you that at the end as well, and how it could still work to give, us, to give Jesus praise, even if I'm wrong. Could it be that as awful as poverty is, as much as we should work to eradicate it, that when Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always, he was making, that he was, that he was true, and that was factual, that he knew, he could see into the future, and he, he knew. Yes, work to eradicate it. Yes, hate it. Yes, feed people. Yes, love people. But he lets us know, the poor you will have with you always. That's a, that's a weird sort of statement for him to make. How could he say the poor you're always going to have with you? And, by the way, you should go serve them. So we know, and this is kind of depressing, we know that serving the poor gives us no full hope from the words of Jesus that we'll ever eradicate poverty. Why would that, why would that be set up that way? Perhaps when Jesus says how you treat the least of these is how you treat me, that they're connected. So, so here's the riddle. If the way we treat the least of these is the way we treat Jesus, 
and the least of these are suddenly somehow delivered and there are no sick and there are no poor and everything's set right, how do we know how we treat Jesus? Could it be that Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always because the way you treat the least of these is the way you treat me and I give them to you always as a gift for you to always know how you would treat me if I were on the planet. I don't know. But if it doesn't apply to that, it certainly applies to other things. There are things that we call ugly and twisted. There are principalities that we hate, and yet they exist. So they act as mirrors for us to see how we are interacting with God. How we would really treat Jesus. And that's a gift. Finally, the, the, the last and kind of clinching and, and maybe the one you've heard before is if, if God was all over the very worst thing that ever happened, which was the murder of his son, then certainly he's not disconnected to every other thing that happens that is less wicked. And he took the worst thing that ever happened, the death of his son, and made it a beautiful, wonderful, great thing. And I just think that he takes other terrible things and turns them and makes them into great things. And the thing to remember is they won't always... Exist. He does have a plan of, of coming back and restoring uh, the, the earth, and, and we have this expectancy of heaven. And so even the evil is not eternal. But in the meantime, where we live, it is there to glorify God and to turn us towards God and to make us seek God. Another way to say this would be that a week, a week from today, when the Super Bowl is played and, and one of, some team wins and they, they get glory, they get a trophy and they get coverage and they get endorsements and they get glory. It's interesting to think about that, that who contributed to those, that team's glory the most were all the opposing teams during the season. The reason that team has glory is because there were forces that continually opposed them. And without the opposition, there's no glory. And God stands always victorious, but his glory is often shown because of opposing forces. Just like you set diamonds on black velvet to show contrast. God said a statement about two different people and it was the same statement. It's interesting. He said, I have chosen this person to, to bring me glory, uh, to show the nations what I might do, something like that. And one of them is Pharaoh, and one of them is the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul. Same statement. Two drastically different lives, one wicked and, and one converted, and yet Jesus says of both of them, I chose that person to bring me glory. So... Some of us, and that's where we move into this next section, and we won't move into the third. Some of us get to catch that and participate in that, and that is the church. He's going to get glory from every person who ever breathes, who ever lives. And some of us can acknowledge it and participate in it. And that's what the next passage is about. So let's start in 18. He is... Also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. 
so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. I'm just going to try to talk to you for about five more minutes and leave half an hour in my notes. Um, I, I can't exaggerate. We can't exaggerate the, the incredible gift to get to know who God is and what God is about and be on his side of things and have this God that's, that's going to wring out every individual and gain glory from every individual, but us to be part of the individuals that know that and participate in that and surrender to that and love that he's doing that. Because otherwise, he looks very self-centered. We're the people who understand that this self-exaltation of God, this God who's saying, I created everything, I'm the center of everything, I'm the source of everything, I deserve all glory, which to a lost person sounds a little high maintenance and whiny, maybe. But we're the group, the church, and he's the head of the church, we're the group that understands that the, the reason he's self-centered is because it's the only way he could be God-centered. It would be less loving for him to tell us to worship anyone else. He's the only one who is satisfied. It's like saying that it would be arrogant if there's a lot of hungry people in a living room and someone comes in and notices and they say, I have bread. That is not arrogant. That is loving. And how wicked would it be? You know, these, these people stay hungry and, and, and they leave one by one to go try to find food and, and then... You know, the wife says to the husband, maybe, uh, why didn't you tell him you had a lot of bread? So well, I didn't want to brag. <laughs> when you have what meets people's needs and it's wonderful and it's glorious, you tell them about it and it's not bragging. So here we have a God saying, I am, I'm extremely important. I'm essential. I'm central and source of everything. Everything was created for my glory. Everything's going to, to gain me glory and all things I have preeminence. And it's the most loving thing he could tell us. Because he invites us to participate in that. He invites us to be the, the people who have that theology. To know, like verse 19 says, that in him, that is Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a, what a gracious word there. Not, here's Jesus, he's the fullness of God. But here's Jesus, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That God said, I was pleased to share myself with you. And that not only did he dwell, but he, through him, verse 20, we were reconciled. He's reconciling all things. He's going to set all things right. And he can do that because of the peace made by him dying on the cross. We're the people who get to know that. And that theology, that knowledge, that truth is, is supposed to penetrate and produce something. The pattern, the pattern is uh, theology, doxology, ministry. That's, that's the pattern. If we try to have ministry without doxology, is just worship and theology, just truth. Uh, if, we ha if we try to have ministry without worship, it doesn't work. If we try to have worship without theology, it doesn't work. So here's what I hope has happened in this little time we've had together. 
I've, I've just given you theology mainly and not much application, but my hope is that the theology of this great, big, controlling, wonderful God produces doxology, produces worship, and that that worship produces ministry. You go somewhere and do something because of it. Because the Bible teaches uh, this outrageous thing that now we are the visible representation of God. That Jesus in in his time was the, the person Jesus was the visible representation, was God in the flesh. And now we are. So if I were to take little Lucky as, a, as a, an elementary school student and somehow I had a time machine and I wanted to show him who God was, uh, I might go way back to Old Testament times and there's, there's Moses and a mountain and fire coming down from the mountain and the Ten Commandments being given and voices from heaven and fire and smoke. And I would say, see, that's God. And yet all the people are scared to go to him. And, and then maybe you, you, you then travel and somehow I can get to a beach. And I can say, okay, I've got, I've got something different now. There's, you, you see all, the, all these people and you see that little boy and you see that man. That man is about to take that boy's lunch and feed all these people because that man is God in the flesh. And he would understand even better. But today, I'd have to just bring him here and have him stand here and say, there, there he is. There's the visible representation of God. It's not fire and smoke on a mountain anymore. It's not Jesus in the flesh anymore. It is us. And if we don't know who God is and we don't celebrate who God is, we won't represent him very well. So that's why it's important. Let's stand. Let me pray for you. And if you'll indulge me, also my son and... then you'll continue to worship in song. Jesus, thank you again for the accommodation of Grace Bible Church, allowing us to change things up. And even this morning, Lord, I say that, uh, you know, the, you fearfully and wonderfully made Mason, even knowing that uh, his appendix would be inflamed and that this is not outside of your control, that you are in all things and will gain glory from all things help us to live with that foundation under our feet and help it not to rob us of still serving the weak and the hungry and and evangelizing the lost but just to know we're not alone and it is not our efforts that will make the difference but your presence and your work that you go before us and that we can just participate with you which is an amazing gift And so I pray this church and this city, that Grace Bible Church in Nacogdoches, Texas, would be a visible representation of who you are because of the way they live. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.